0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter three, Mark chapter three. We're going to be looking for a few weeks at different passages in Mark that really introduce Jesus to us. And and we've been walking through for some time the gospel of Matthew and and what Matthew has to uh, share with us about Christ. But We're going to jump now into Mark's gospel. As we do this, I'll just introduce uh, some of what we're going to see here this morning because it, it won't be simple to keep it up the entire time. So I'll just kind of introduce this at the beginning as we, as we walk through this together and hopefully you can uh, get a good feel for where we're headed this morning. So this morning in this passage, Mark 3, 7 through 21, we're going to be considering together knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus, not just creating an idea of Jesus, but knowing him as he is. As we do this, We'll see that for Jesus's disciples, all of them, not just the original 12, but for all of Jesus' disciples, following Jesus is about knowing and loving Jesus. Following Jesus is about knowing and loving Jesus. Kind of got three main points this morning. We'll see the crowds first, the crowds crush as they press in on Jesus in verses seven through 12. Then secondly, we'll see the disciples called, disciples called in verses. Thirteen through nineteen and then with Jesus' those who are close with Jesus will ask is Jesus the crazy one here is is Jesus as revealed in God's word uh, a little bit off his rocker is this the crazy Jesus now as we look into this passage I'm going to begin reading in uh, verse seven mark three verse seven and then I'm going to bring up a map and kind of walk us through uh, where we are and just kind of situate uh, this passage so mark three And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Well, when Mark introduces us here, he introduces us to people from a number of areas. And as you track along this map, you can really see he lists people from Tyre and Sidon. So in the far north, Jesus uh, to this time is ministering around the Sea of Galilee, uh, right here in, in the middle. so Tyre and Sidon are some uh, 50 miles north. Then he said people have come from beyond the Jordan. That's uh, this region here, uh, Perea, Judea, all the way down to uh, Idumea. And so this is some 120 miles from Galilee where Jesus is ministering. So people, crowds are, (coughs) excuse me, coming from all over uh, to see Jesus. And as these crowds come and, and grow, they press in around Jesus in a way that uh, literally threatens Jesus and his disciples their well-being, they they, they threaten to crush him. As we begin our time here and and what it means to truly know Jesus, I thought I would start here with a picture and I mean a literal picture. In fact, I have a couple of them here with me this morning. Now, you may not recognize the person in this picture, but that's me. Now, I asked uh, this week, Occasionally uh, our kids will do I don't know either a self portrait or a portrait of someone in the family or a portrait of our family And I asked our two younger kids, you know, hey, could you draw a picture of me? And so this is the first one you might notice some things that are uh, lacking like a nose But you also might notice, you know, that the picture has a little more hair than I actually have so, you know There's a part of it that I should just consider flattering. So this is picture number one This is the, the the second the second picture now I know the first thing that you think when you see this picture is that is a prodigy, a Picasso on the way. And I can understand why you would think that because this looks exactly like me. Now, what may not be, what may not be immediately evident to, you, evident to you is that this isn't me as a pill bug, this is me as a baby. So here I am lying you know, wrapped in a striped blanket, but I think the creative part about this is it's me as a baby with glasses. So somehow, I don't have glasses today, but as a baby, you know, my son imagined me with glasses, and this is my, my belly button there, right in the middle, so the cotton ball. Well, as, as I was, one reason I, I asked uh, them to do this was, what we have in our minds is, is we have an image. We all picture ourselves as something or even picture someone else as something, but it's very easy to create an unrealistic picture, either of ourselves or of other people. And what we see in this passage is that those who walk with Jesus, whether it's his disciples and his family who are very close by with him, or whether it's the crowds who press in on him, each of them has a picture of Jesus, and they've kind of created their own image of Jesus rather than Jesus as he is. So let's look at these crowds as the crowds are crushing in around Jesus. So Jesus has been ministering in a city. He now withdraws out of the city and goes to a place out uh, out by the sea, and he's really trying to get away from this pressing crowd. But Mark tells us that the crowd follows Jesus. In verse 7, he calls it a great crowd. Now, by this time, as we've seen, it's not merely people in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, who are with Jesus. It's it's people from all over Israel and even outside Israel who are coming to see Jesus. And they traveled and traveling 120 miles by foot or on the back of an animal is no small task so these people who are there have gone to great effort to come see jesus which begs the question why is it that these people are coming to jesus well verse 8 tells us when the great crowd heard all that he was doing they came to him now sometimes as we read through the gospels we see a picture of jesus and, and, and we picture him in our mind sort of sitting placidly on a rock, teaching a crowd as everyone is very calm and quiet. But some of you right now in your own living rooms are experiencing what Jesus experienced as an, it's not a quiet moment. When you have 5,000 people sitting by the seat and none of them have eaten all day and there are women and kids and, and, and men and like there's this giant crowd. It's not a quiet moment. It's, it's a loud, raucous moment. And Mark makes this clear in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, he says, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Because he had healed so many that all had diseases, who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So they're literally clawing, fighting, grabbing to get close to Jesus. This is not an orderly kind of line of people waiting calmly to see the doctor. It's a crowd, a mob pressing in around Jesus. Uh, The original words tell us that they're literally falling on Jesus. They're just falling over each other to get to him. Imagine desperate, hungry people who are trying to to pursue the one person they can believe uh, can help them. And so ironically, their desperation threatens to crush the person that, that they want to get to. So, so they desire Jesus, and yet their desire for him actually threatens the very person they desire. So on the, on the one hand, the crowds need Jesus. But on the other hand, their presence threatens his ministry. Now, there are a couple of ways to think about desiring someone else. There, there's, there's a desire that, that wants someone else or wants a relationship with someone else for the good of that person. So you pursue that person, and and when you do it for the good of that person, we call that love. But there's another desire, and that's a desire that wants a relationship or wants a person for for our own sake, to meet our own needs. That's what we might call uh, selfishness, or in worse forms, lust, pursuing, desiring something to satisfy ourselves. In uh, in 2013, there's a very sad story here in South Carolina of of a man who was hugging a 14-month-old little boy. Now, a hug, not in COVID-19 time, but generally speaking, a hug is, is a sign of love. It's a sign of affection. And yet this man hugged this child so tightly and for so long that the child tragically suffocated and died and so this symbol of love this hug this symbol of affection became something that threatened the well-being of this child so an act of love when done for our own desires not for the good of the other person can become a selfish act uh, sometimes it can be i don't know a helicopter mom who loves her kids so much that she almost suffocates her kids uh, she she loves them but we love in a way that's designed to just protect and, and almost suffocates the, the relationship. Or it might be a, a young person who is uh, seeking a friendship, relationship, and in doing so, they seek the friendship so strongly that, that, they, that they almost suffocate the life out of it because they demand it too much from that friendship. Or we all see it from time to time. If, if we are living with someone in a, in a married relationship, a, a spouse who loves selfishly, so we lead, we, we live in a way that's, you know, professed, you know, it's, it's ostensibly loving the person, but really it's to get what we want. And so the crowds here are so desperate that their desperation actually threatens the person they want to see. Now they have real needs because they come to him and they have diseases, they have all kinds of problems. And some of these people are, are there just to see a spectacle. Some are there, no doubt, because they have a disease that needs to be healed. And, and some we see in a moment are, are possessed by demons they don't just think they need Jesus. They really need Jesus. They have real needs. And yet the difficulty with these people is because their needs are so big in their eyes, they're obsessed with their needs, not with Christ. They want help. They don't necessarily want Jesus. Well, sometimes in our own way, we can do something similar. We can manipulate our view of God as as he's revealed in his word and create a God after our own image. Someone who gives us what we want or what we feel like we need. We want Jesus because we believe Jesus has the power to give us what we want. We don't want Jesus for Jesus's sake. And we know this because there are times in our lives when Jesus gives us something different than our ideal picture. And in those moments, the gap between what we want and what we experience and our response to that gap demonstrates something to us about whether we really want Jesus or whether we want what we want. And so before we continue on here, let's pause and ask ourselves, have we allowed at times our needs to motivate us to create a God who exists to give us what we want. That's not the God of the Bible, because God is all-wise, all-knowing, and he knows better than any human being can know what's best. I mean, sometimes Bible-preaching churches practice a form of what's sometimes called the prosperity gospel. In other words, God exists to make us happy, healthy, and wealthy. We believe that Jesus exists to meet our needs. But as God's people, we worship Christ for who he is, not for just what we want. God exists for his own sake. And when we twist this, we should repent for thinking he exists to give us what we want or exist for our sake. So first we see the crowds crushing, but now Jesus steps away and we see the disciples called, the disciples called verses 13 through 19. I'll read these verses now. Mark 3, 13, and Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also called apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name gave the name Bo- Boanergenes, that is the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Jesus has already called uh, a handful of men to follow him, the fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and, and John. Now we see him set aside 12 men who we know as the 12 disciples or 12 apostles for specific focused teaching, modeling, living and instruction. And so for the rest of Jesus's ministry, these men are going to walk with him, eat with him, talk with him, sleep with him, share life with him in a way that no one else will. Well, what is it that makes Jesus choose these 12 men? Look at verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him and he appointed 12. So the language here, it's it's quickly read, but it's formal and serious. It's almost ceremonious jesus goes up on this mountain to call disciples and it, it's not just an eastern mysticism that mountains are significant we see mountain moments in the life of christ in the life of god's people they're significant moments we see moses at mount sinai as god sets him apart and calls his people through the law jesus calls those whom he desires now One reason this is significant is because it's the opposite of the way that it normally works in Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, normally it's a disciple desiring a rabbi and chasing him. In this case, it's the rabbi desiring disciples and chasing them, pursuing them. It's it's sort of like uh, choosing, normally the the disciple would choose the college. In this case, the college chooses the disciple. Jesus is the ultimate rabbi, God himself. Now, for each of us, there's a moment. We may be consciously aware of this moment, or we may not know exactly when it happens, but there's a moment of deciding, will we follow Jesus or not? And if you walk with Christ, that decision is more than one moment of decision. It's a series of decisions of continuing to walk with Christ. You know, what we see in God's word and what we see here is that our decision to follow Christ is a result of his decision to call us. Verse John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. Jesus goes away and he calls his disciples. And the language is actually stronger than verse 14 makes it clear. It literally says he made 12 or he created 12. He creates this, this group of disciples. If we're followers of Christ this morning, we're followers of Christ because Jesus invites us to know him. But remarkably, there's this moment in the original calling of the 12 here in Mark 12, look at the end of verse 19. One of these 12 is who? Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Spending time with Jesus doesn't mean you truly know Jesus. Looking like people who follow Jesus doesn't mean you know Jesus. There is a warning here in this passage, in this list of the 12. Now, you know, we imagine today that Judas is some sort of squinty-eyed villain, you know, like you could see by the sly looks in his eye that he's some sort of sneaky person. But we know from God's word that Judas is a model citizen. He's bright-eyed. He's honest-looking. I mean, remember, we get to the end of Jesus' life. Remember the Last Supper? Jesus tells his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. So Peter, being Peter and being one to speak up quickly, he says, well, who's that? Who's going to betray you? Jesus answers in John 13, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So he dips a piece of bread and he gives it to one of his disciples. He hands it to Judas. Then verse 27, John 13, 27, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Now, this is remarkable because Jesus says, I'm going to give this to the person who's going to betray me. He gives it to Judas. And then he says, what you're going to do, go do. And then the disciples have no idea. And and, and verses 29 and 30, give us some insight into what they're thinking. Some thought because Jesus had the money bag. Jesus was telling Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, "Buy what we need, or go give some money to the poor." Jesus literally points at Judas and says, "This is the dude." And the disciples think, "Well, Judas must be off on some errand of mercy." I mean, this is this is remarkable. None of the disciples pause to think. You know, when when we cast out demons. It's true, Judas's didn't come out. The rest of us came out, but Judas's those demons, they didn't quite come out. Or we always wondered why Judas was digging around in the bottom of the money bag. I mean, they, they don't suspect him at all. I mean, he looks and acts like the best of the disciples. So, verses 14: Describe what the disciples do. They preach, they cast out demons. Judas is preaching, he's casting out demons. This is a scary warning. Judas is named an apostle, and yet he's not a true follower of Christ. Judas looks, sounds, smells, tastes, feels like a disciple. How in the world can we know if that could be us? Well, a text doesn't come out and give us an answer, does it? But look back at verse 14, and I think there's a clue here. Jesus appoints 12 to do three things. They might be with him that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. It's easy to be busy about the work of ministry without taking time to actually spend a moment with Jesus. And there are three things here, to spend time with Jesus, to know Jesus, and then preach and and cast out demons, to do ministry. Judas is preaching. Judas is casting out demons, yet he misses Jesus. The first call of these disciples is to spend time with Jesus. I mean, think back to the crowds. They want Jesus' work, but not Jesus himself. Judas wants the notoriety of of following Jesus, but he never embraces Christ himself by faith. Jesus' first call to us is to be with him. He is the beginning and the end of all things, the alpha and the omega, the very reason for which we exist. So if we take account of our days, do we spend time with Jesus? Do you ever open God's word and listen to him? I don't mean the red words. I mean all the words, God's written revelation, the inspired word of God. Do you talk with Jesus? Do you converse with him in prayer? Do you engage when when the church gathers and worships with Christ? Or do you participate in the activities that look like Jesus without ever knowing Jesus? I mean, if we miss Jesus in scripture, we miss the very reason for our existence. If we miss Jesus in worship, we miss the point of being a disciple. If we miss Jesus in our life, we can go through life doing good things maybe even some things that Jesus did and still go to hell because doing good things can't save anyone. Trusting Christ means that we embrace who Jesus is more than the activity of being a good person or being what a Christian is. Yes, our deeds matter, but if we get the cart in front of the horse or you get a cart with no horse, a life with no gospel, we'll find ourselves on the outside of the kingdom looking in. And it's likely that in any community of Christ, including ours, there are people who are engaged in good activities, who attend church, even on a time like this when we can't attend at the church building, singing songs, serving, and yet we know we've never truly embraced Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't just for the wretches out in the streets, He's for the wretches in these seats. So this morning, if you haven't embraced Christ, would you turn from your sin and trust him? So the disciples are called, and this brings us to our third point. Is this some off-kilter, crazy Jesus? Verses 20 and 21, I'll read these now. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Jesus' family is convinced he's crazy. Now we have three separate stories here, but all three stories start with Jesus doing the same thing, getting away from the crowd. He's getting away, getting away, getting away. Verse seven, he withdraws. Verse 13, he goes up to the mountain. Verse 20, he goes home. I mean, the crowds are chasing, chasing, chasing. Jesus is looking for a moment's peace. He needs rest. He needs restoration from the demands of ministry and needy people. We see in Jesus' life, him getting up early to pray. He ministers from a point of weariness but he constantly fights for time away. I mean, we can look at the rhythm of Jesus's life and be encouraged. Jesus needs sleep. Jesus needs to eat. He needs spiritual restoration and renewal. He is truly a human being in every sense. A perfect, sinless human being, yet one who is faced with physical limitations. Jesus ministers and rests ministers and withdraws so if you're a mom then you struggle with guilt at some level because having your child play by himself for a little while feels like you're neglecting him i mean look at the life of christ here jesus withdraws he needs to be rest and be restored or if you're someone who feels like i don't know you're letting the world down or your boss down to put your phone aside or on do not disturb or set it in another room remember The example of Jesus, the perfect son of God, he withdrew, he rested. I mean, this should motivate us to guard this rhythm of worship and rest as part of God's people. I mean, one thing that's good for any person and certainly any follower of Christ is to make it a priority on Sunday, not just to worship, but to differentiate Sunday from every other day of the week. It ought not to be like every other day. To withdraw from the cares of life, to lean into community, to lean into the worship of the church. Spiritual rest and renewal should be a regular part of our walk with God and a regular part of our life as a church. Once again, the crowds threatened Jesus. The crowd gathered again so they couldn't even eat, while those who are close to Jesus are concerned about him. And they jealously try to get him away from this dangerous crowd. Our, Our translations tell us in verse 21 that this is Jesus's family. But what the text says is those of him went out to see, we don't know if they're his literal family or they're just people who are very close to Jesus, but they go out to try to seize him. Now, when we see people in the gospels attempting to seize Jesus, that's never a good thing. It's it's normally talking about those who oppose Jesus, soldiers, scribes, Pharisees, who seek to seize him and restrict his freedom. And these people misread Jesus's concern for these needy people and say, he's out of his mind. John 10, the Jews accused Jesus of being out of his mind. You see, those who are closest to Jesus don't yet understand his mission. They wanna help him, but they help him by trying to control him, to seize him, to bind him, to use him for their purposes, even if they're just trying to protect him. And the story ends rather abruptly. We don't really know how Jesus responds. They say he's out of his mind and Mark doesn't tell us how he responds. We know eventually he continues the ministry, but we don't know how he responds to these people in this moment. As we sit here this morning, there's a depth to Jesus that we can never fully comprehend. And this story illustrates this. It ends abruptly, this ministry, this mystery. How does Jesus respond? I mean, we can devote our entire lives to knowing Jesus and yet never exhaustively know him. We can know him and yet he's something that we can keep exploring and continue to know. When we fail in loving Jesus, we can revel in knowing that Jesus' perfect love has already been applied to our account. This is what Paul prays for in, in Ephesians chapter three. He prays for the church to know the love of Christ that is beyond knowledge. You get the irony there, the, 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 the tension? He prays that we would know something that you cannot know. It's beyond knowledge. If you devote your entire life to knowing Jesus, you will love him more and more and yet increasingly learn that there's always more to know. You will never exhaust the depths of Jesus. So your love for Jesus will grow deeper, higher, wider, longer, and yet never bored, never exhausted. And then you'll fail in loving Jesus And when you fail, you'll learn to know Jesus' love even better because he loves us even when we fail. And in our failures, his perfection, his perfect love has already been applied to our account. So Jesus, for instance, knows that Peter's going to fail and he's already made provision for that. So we see this morning that following Jesus is about knowing and loving Jesus for who he is. He's not a king to be controlled by crowds or even by a few close friends. And yet Jesus offers himself, not just the idea, but he offers himself to us. He's someone that we can receive in faith. And anyone who comes to him in faith can truly know him. Thank God that the Savior who loves us, saves us, will keep us. It's so good to see you again today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.